0: I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of UpZoned. This is a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we talk about it in depth. We upzone it. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by a special guest, John Reuter, a former Sandpoint, Idaho councilman, columnist, and bipartisan strategist and board member for Strong Towns. John, welcome to Upzone. Your very first time on with me as the host. We have not formally met yet in person or online. So it's really nice to meet you. And I hope I accurately portrayed your background. But if there's anything that you want to add, um, please do.
1: No, that was a wonderful and kind introduction, and I really appreciate it. And I am so excited to get to talk with you today. The funny thing about these podcasts, and I'm sure this is true for, you know, the people out there listening, is I feel like, you know, I already feel like we're great friends, but that's because I've been getting to listen to you for months. Um, and so you're like, I don't know who you are at all. I know you're on the board. Occasionally, we talk on the Slack channel. <laughs> but to me, I'm like, oh, this is my best friend. Let's hang out and let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about Strongtown. So uh, you're at a little disadvantage, but to me, you know we're already bosom friends. And I'm looking forward to having you realize that too during this call, hopefully.
0: Well, that's the thing when you're listening to podcasts, I feel like you not only feel like you get to know the person that you're listening to, because I have the same thing with the lineup that I listen to. But you also sometimes feel like you want to say something in the conversation, like if you know about something, so I'm sure you have a long list of things that you'd like to take up with me, (laughs) based on me and Chuck's conversations.
1: I definitely I definitely talk back. So the difference in this experience will be that you'll actually hear the things I say. That'll yes. be the biggest, uh, the biggest difference there. Uh, so, yeah, I
0: love that. I love that. Well, we are going to talk about a topic that you know a lot about. And it's something that, you know, I'm I'm as a planner. I'm constantly dealing with it. We are going to talk about parking. The article is called How Parking Drives Up Housing Prices. It was published in The Atlantic and written by Michael Manville. Uh, It starts out with a very astute subtitle, says parking requirements attack the nature of the city itself, subordinating density to the needs of the car. So this tension between urbanity and parking is something that has been with us seemingly since the normalization of auto ownership itself. Writers like Lewis Mumford and Jane Jacobs recognized back in the 60s that parking lots are dead spaces and they destroy the spirit of the city. We fast forward to 2021, 60 years later, and we have not resolved this issue because driving is basically required for so many living situations in most cities in the United States. Personal vehicles really revolutionized transportation by increasing mobility and enabling autonomy. And in response to that, we spent decades building metros for moving vehicles very fast and very far. And as the article points out, This promise of autonomy and mobility are really only truly fulfilled if your car has a space to store itself everywhere you go. And that space comes with a pretty hefty price that is not really recognized by most people. The development of parking lots and structures is now systematic within zoning and development codes and even baking standards. And these standards are really an attempt to account for car storage needs that could arise from any new development project. And it assumes that everybody drives and that we need to be able to account for peak hours, but the cost of building parking lots and structures end up being hidden in the cost of development. And that ultimately gets passed on to tenants and consumers. So in some way we're all paying for that. And while suburban contexts are more likely to sprawl out their parking lots on cheap land, urban contexts are more likely to build parking structures, making it even more expensive in urban areas. So the result is that parking requirements are making essentially driving less expensive and development more expensive, and tenants and consumers, regardless of whether they drive or not, are subsidizing those costs you know whether they're buying something at a retail space or paying it in their rent and it's more likely that urban places have more expensive parking and less people who are actually driving. So John, you were were really first thrown into this topic as I understand from doing some research on you before this show when you were a councilman in Sandpoint, which is a small town in northern Idaho. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what approach you guys took with regard to dealing with this kind of perceived need to have parking everywhere we go and, and what approaches um, have been successful in that town and other places perhaps?
1: It was. It was definitely one of the hot topics when I was, it was about almost a decade ago now that I was on this uh, small town city council board and there were the two hottest topics Meaning most controversial were dog parks and parking, and so uh, we'll dodge the topic of dog parks today. But uh, the issue of, of poop in the city is uh, is one of continual uh, contentiousness that uh, that never goes away. Yeah, um, we'll but- save that for another episode. Yeah, but parking just as intense. And when I came onto the council, we had parking requirements. And they were causing actually a lot of problems, a lot of unanticipated problems in the community. So let me name a couple of what examples of this were, which about caught to my attention, because I just, I'll have to tell you, before I started noticing these things, I just didn't think about parking at all. It wasn't something that I, you know, like like we had a car, you drove it places, you parked it. Sometimes it was hard. Like I thought about maybe like, oh, it's hard to find a parking spot somewhere. Um, that's kind of annoying or those kind of things. But otherwise it was not something that's on top of my mind like, a big issue of like the community and something that'd be really important in general. But what we discovered was a couple of things. One was a case where something was getting built. So we were building this large bank building was getting built in our downtown um, of this small town, of about 8,000 people in Sandpoint. And with this large three-story bank building came these tremendous amounts of parking spots needed to be required, about 300 spots need to be required around this bank. Wow. And there wasn't a lot of empty space around this bank. And so what they started doing, because they were building this new building there, right, um, replacing this old thing that had been there, is they started buying up the land around them and knocking structures down so they could replace it with parking, which people were not thrilled about, right? And they're like going, yeah. we, we don't love this. Um, now, we had a system where they could pay a fine in lieu of parking and It would be $10,000. Instead of paying for a space, you'd give us $10,000 for a space and get it waived so we could go build parking for you somewhere else. But they did not think that was a great idea because they're like, we'd rather just buy the land, which is cheaper than us paying you this fee, and then we get the asset of owning the land too. So they were going around and just knocking things down and people were willingly selling to them. And why were people willingly selling to them? Because their land was more valuable to the bank as parking than it was actually as like a structure for them to have their business. And there was a small coffee shop that was like thinking they'd probably hold out, but was like, I don't know, the bank's willing to offer us a pretty good deal for our, for our land here to knock it down and turn into parking. There were series of small businesses and, a, and an inn that were across the street from this site, if two or three of those houses of those four or five houses sell, then immediately i get knocked down for parking. Now you've got a pretty miserable place to live. You used to live on this nice street with these little businesses and you like have a nice shop there. And now you've got like this area that's like been ransacked with parking, right? And like had everything be knocked down around it. So that's one story. And we're like, this is a problem. These parking requirements are not having the impact we want. They're actually destroying uh, space and making it inactive versus actually having to grow. The other one was this small uh, Mexican restaurant called Joel's. and Jules is like Jules is like this great example of like the strong towns like dream of incremental development it started out as a taco stand where like, they like sold tacos to people like you know they're like stuck up on like a parking lot somewhere probably <laughs> ironically enough and then it transferred into a truck and became a vehicle that was you know driving around and offering the wares to people that way. And finally they were able to actually like build a space downtown. And they had this nice, you know, like restaurant that they built and these entrepreneurs had like come up with, which was great. But they wanted to expand it. Like we're doing great business. We want to build this extension onto our thing which we can have some more seating and everything. And the cost of them there was nowhere to build parking on their site and they weren't going to buy it a lot and they needed like three or four spots. The cost of paying in lieu of parking fees was greater than the cost of actually building the expansion. And then to then to like add injury to insult, the city parking lot was across the street for them, which was an entire block of parking. Entire half block, I guess, but, but it was a super block. So it ended up so you have hundreds of parking spots across the street, and you're saying, I'm sorry, you can't expand because you don't have enough parking here. So seeing those two instances, I was pretty uh, I was pretty concerned, right? It like immediately makes you go like, what are we doing here?
0: So ironically, I've been dealing with just a, a parking issue within my own neighborhood where a developer is is wanting to renovate a three-story, formerly mixed-use building that's currently used as a duplex. And they'd like to bring it back to being a mixed-use building with, I think, like seven units. And... It's in a corner of the neighborhood that used to be more of a through street that connected to the rest of the city, which made sense that there was this mixed use building on this street, but over the years was cut off for the highway. So now it's this kind of weird uh, you know cut off corner of the neighborhood and it you know doesn't have any any opportunity for parking on that site. And so the prospect of that becoming seven units with a commercial tenant has really made a lot of neighbors upset because people don't have parking um, in this neighborhood. and so so that's something that we've been dealing with just this week. It's a, it has become a very contentious issue and trying to figure out what what a compromise position is because the alternative is that buildings kind of sit vacant. And can be unused, and so I, I think that you know I've seen a lot of cities that will abolish their parking standards in downtown contexts, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, Kansas City has exemptions, in, in their downtown, we've worked with many cities where we just exempt their main street or their downtown area, um, just because it it becomes. It, it very much undermines the the downtown development pattern to have to deal with it that way. But what's less clear to me is how you deal with kind of mixed use residential neighborhoods where people it was just built before a time that everybody had had vehicles with them and had expectations that they would be able to park on the street, and especially in in cities where the culture is around walking and biking is just not as not as strong, I think, as as cities on the coast where people will take public transit more normally. And also, you know, within larger metro context, how you how you actually kind of deal with this issue versus how you might deal with it in smaller cities or small towns, really, because small towns to me are contexts that really are scaled to being able to live car free. And I mentioned this to you offline. And so I want to talk about this and see what your perspective is, because it's kind of my perspective that because of the scale of small towns, you are closer to where you're getting. It seems inherently easier to, to make the case that you don't need to supply parking with every new project where in a context like Kansas City or St. Louis or Indianapolis or Atlanta, any of these kind of mid-sized, spread-out cities, people generally are not as close to where they're going from a metro context. And the metro scale is very car-oriented if you don't have robust transit. So it's not only zoning, I think, in our case, that is reinforcing this dependence on automobiles, but it's also all of these other things within a metro context. It's DOTs that are adding lanes, it's land speculators out on, out on the edge promoting the growth that we talk about at strong towns, it's municipalities that are willing to expand infrastructure with very little thought about return on investment in the long run. Um, You also have large employers that choose to go out on the edge. And if they do decide to move into the downtown, they want incentives and 12 stories of structured parking. (laughs) So so you have all of these other things that are at play that are undermining the things that we're talking about and, and really building a robust city that doesn't make you dependent on driving a car everywhere you're going. From my perspective, it seems like small towns would enable that more local lifestyle, and it would enable you to not necessarily have to drive everywhere you go and store a car everywhere you go. What's your perspective on that, as someone who is has is very familiar with a smaller town?
1: I think what I think what's funny about that is that well that's what small towns people will say about big cities, right? Now they're thinking about really? off East Coast <laughs> cities, but they'll be like, well, in a city you might not need a car because you have buses and you have transit and you know and there's more like you can like live in an apartment downtown and then you're part of like the you know you're here and so it's just a very different thing in a big city. But we can't have those kind of reforms come to our small town because like we need our cars because we go out into like. The rural area, right? We go into the country. We have to like be able to drive out to like the store that's on the edge of town and go and pick up our stuff from that from the Walmart, right? We need to be able to drive out into the wilderness and like go do things on the weekend. We need to be able to like drive out to the park that's over here. And you know, we all live in our you know all the people out of town living in their five acres or two acres, um, pretending they live in uh, a rural area when really they just live in a in a in a um, suburban area that's designed to look like it's a rural area. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs>
0: I know those places. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And also people truly living in rural areas too, right? Yeah. Um, But the reality is, I I think you get it with some of your comments is, the question is, it's easier to do in places. Well, here's what it is. You cannot build suburban parking and have a traditional development pattern. Like it's impossible to do both. And, And likewise, you cannot build a suburban style development and not have the parking. They're in some ways like, Parking, more than anything else, shapes the built structures of our communities. More than any other feature, parking is determinative on how our buildings relate to the streets, on how our buildings relate to each other, and on on how easy and what mode of transportation makes sense to get around in that spot. Parking is the most important factor, and that's what I was starting to learn, and that's what I was saying about Sandpoint. Is I was like, oh my goodness. Parking's the whole ballgame. I thought parking was like this little like wonky issue that we just (laughs) off to the side and be like, oh, what do you do? And you know, it's important. It's important to like some like small group of wonky people who think about wonky things. But the reality is parking, maybe more than any other policy decision, shapes the way we live our lives, how we encounter each other, how we relate to each other, how we relate to buildings and what it's like to live somewhere. It's sort of like the key piece there. And what we've done in much of our country, as you were pointing out and in your neighborhood is we've just said, we're going to ban the traditional pattern. And you can't do that directly, right? Because people love downtowns. So instead, it was done in sort of this sideways way where we just like banned people to build them because you couldn't come up with enough parking or because it wouldn't like actually make sense, financial sense to build that kind of parking. And, And what we did with parking everywhere, right, which is what makes it so hard in the city context you talk about, is we've insisted that parking be free. And when you make something free, you can never have enough of it. It's like if I started if I started giving out free pizza today, when would I stop? It would be whenever I ran out of pizza. Like people are going to keep showing up for that free pizza until you're out of it. And yet so we get the idea that like free pizza is not going to like lead to an abundance of like enough pizza for everyone, but we don't get the idea that like free parking is not going to lead to enough parking for everyone. Like it just simply you know, there isn't enough, right? And that's why so many people have ar- argumented this sort of the Donald Shoup case and the case, you know, uh, the high cost of free parking. He writes about this, um, and it's underlined in this article, too, that we're talking about today. It's like, you got to put a price on it, right? If you want to have, if you want to have, an, if you want there to be enough parking to put a price on it. Although, I'll say one more thing about this. In my little town in Sandpoint, and this is true in so many places across the country, we actually had plenty of parking. It just wasn't always right in front of the building. And so what we kept doing is saying, we're going to require even more parking. And we're even trying to figure out how to bond for millions of dollars so we can build a parking garage, which thank goodness we never did this, so we can have even more parking. But it was not going to be in front of the businesses. It wasn't going to be right on the street. And so the reality was, we didn't need it. Like, we actually already had parking that was two blocks away. So part of the trick of this whole thing is to actually have people be comfortable with the idea that maybe parking is not going to be right in front of the place or maybe parking is going to cost something. Uh, maybe you're going to have to get a parking permit to be able to park in your neighborhood, right? Maybe there's going to be some ways that we start to like actually deal with that access issue and not expect cars to get this massive subsidy uh, at the cost of our communities and our friendships and our relationships with each other.
0: Yeah, and our housing too. Which right. Oh, our housing is, prices, is really absolutely. the big point of this article is that somebody's paying for it somewhere. You know, ultimately the cost of parking is not free and it's it's something that people just don't really realize is the case. And in the case of looking at neighborhoods that are a traditional development pattern. There aren't really conversations about what we are trading when we over-prioritize parking. Um, but what I also think is missed is what happens when you take this kind of one-size-fits-all regulatory approach to how parking is administered in cities Because a lot of districts will take a district-level approach. We are officed in the Westport area of Kansas City, which used to be its own little town, but now is more of a, I'll say, office and entertainment district becoming more residential. Um, But they very much have a, you know, just like everybody has a parking problem, they have a parking problem, did a parking study. And the results of that study was that they didn't really have a lack of supply of parking, But they had a lack of perception that parking was available to people. And that was a really big piece of kind of using a district wide approach to actually inform people of where parking is and providing alternative options to people and supporting alternatives to every, you know, each person driving to a district I think from a neighborhood perspective, that could be an approach that is taken instead of a regulatory approach. A regulatory approach is very easy to administer by the public sector, but the numbers that are applied can be quite arbitrary in terms of supplying the optimal amount of parking, and also designing parking in a way, you know, whether it's the block scale or the district scale, um, and, and designing it in a way so that it's not undermining. The actual intent of what a traditional development pattern is all about, because the reality is, you know, the realist in me me does say, well, we are modern people living in a historic place and we need to figure out how to cope with that without undermining what we love about these places and that's often a conversation that doesn't happen because there's a reason that we love these places. And it's not because it has a lot of parking. <laughs> it's it's not because there's parking lots everywhere and it's easy to get to. There's a reason that people want to live in places like this. And if you want to see how the regulatory approach to parking plays out, you can go to any commercial edge shopping center um, in any suburb in the country and go see what it looks like. Um. And when you apply those same standards to urban contexts, that can be incredibly damaging. So I I just think that what gets missed in the conversation is actually planning and managing what optimal parking amounts are on a district scale and taking even a block level approach to managing uh, needs in a more realistic way. And you could you could really skip the project by project debates and fights if you do the work up front to actually manage how you're going to deal with um, new investments that come up when you're living in a mixed use context, when you're living in a multifamily context. Um, you know, it's it's better, I think, it pays off more to be proactive about it than to just kind of slap regulations on top of it and hope that. The numbers are going to result in optimal outcomes because i'm very skeptical that the numbers that are applied to these places result in you know anything that is remotely close to what we love about these places
1: i mean the numbers are just totally crazy and have no re- like like, right, have yeah. like a, i think about these old downtown buildings this was the other thing that was happening in fan Point at the time is that People would be like changing from one use to another use in the same building, right? So it goes from, I don't know, being a retail store to a restaurant or from a restaurant to a whatever, right? Uh, to a ballet studio or whatever it is that they're changing around uses here. And yeah, it would so trigger... it's like three
0: parking spaces per ballerina.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and then we say like, okay, well, if you want to make that conversion, then you need to pay us, you know, and, and by the way, the conversion, we mean it's been empty for five years, right? But now you want to put something into it? You right. need to pay the city- <laughs> You know, $50,000 to be able to change that use in parking fines. Now, we're not going to actually build any more parking. It's not going to actually change anything with the parking around this. But even then, or, or you have to knock down a building next door to do it or whatever, which you couldn't do in a downtown area, right? And so what do they do? They say, well, I'll just locate somewhere else where the parking already exists. I won't even use the downtown, right? And and you like lock in what can use it. And by the way, the other empty building next door can immediately could have a valet studio, but it's not available right now because it's being used for something else um, that actually is lowering its use, right? So it's like this weird, it's like this weird game of like, now we've like regulated which buildings can be used for which purposes and we've like downgraded the ability and adaptability of our town in a way that has no actual meaning or relationship to like the reality of places. And we've we banned. We banned downtown. We said we don't want to have a downtown anymore. We don't want to build another one. We don't want to expand on this pattern, which is our favorite place. And it got to that other thing that you were saying about places, which I always think about with parking, right? Um, this idea of place. We know what great places are, and great places are like these places are with people, right? Oftentimes, and like we're all like hanging out together, and we're. Um, and there's activity and there's things going on and there's a restaurant and maybe there's like a street cafe. Like we remember places pre-pandemic and like when we all be together. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm looking forward to it happening again here. Uh, <laughs> in Seattle, it might be a little slower than, than some parts of the country. Oh, yes, yeah,
0: that's true. But uh,
1: some of you might be more into it and we might have gone a little lower. But the thing is, is we'll, say, we'll talk about place and we'll say like, OK, what's the opposite of place? And oftentimes what people will think in their head is like the wilderness. Like the opposite of human-built places is like being out in the wilderness somewhere. But the reality is that's a place too. Being out on the mountain, it's coming from like the West, like being on a mountaintop, hanging out with a with a mountain goat, um, looking out over the water, looking out over the hills and everything. Like that's a place. It's meaningful. It matters. There's connection, right? All those things are true there. The opposite of place is really parking. Nothing's happening. Nothing's being used. And the thing about this parking is because of these arbitrary standards we're building way too much of it like in place like like we build our parking for for black friday right we build it for the highest peak season of the year and we've been doing this project at strong towns for several years now where we go and take pictures on black on black friday right to take parking at you know, black parking friday um where we go and take pictures of of the empty lots and even on that day you'll see on this big shopping day of the year you'll see all these empty lots all over the place they're not getting filled so we built all this parking that we actually are never going to use. It's just a waste of activity. It's a, it's a cost. It does nothing for us in our communities, and it's a total waste. Um, I, I think it's interesting, and, and I think that's what gets to my thought is, I don't know that we need to do anything other than just stop requiring it. And then in Sandpoint, we actually even put some maximums in place. We actually, so we ended up eliminating it for downtown, and we said, you can build newer downtown parking, but we're not going to require it anywhere. And then we're going to take the old minimums and make the maximums. So you can't build any more parking than this because we were seeing how this bank building parking was actually damaging things. And we actually had to do a negotiated deal with the bank to make it so that they could... uh, so they to like they already they under the old rules, so we had to like renegotiate with them, um, reduce their parking requirements. So we reduced their parking requirements and had them come with like a business incubator, which was great for them and great for us, and like helped start some new small businesses, um, which made, amazingly didn't need more parking, um, not that surprisingly. And then we also said in the rest of town we reduced the parking requirements for all the residential. And that's what I want to say about this is like, parking requirements are a bit like horseshoes, where close counts. Um, it matters, you know, you say this thing. And so even if you can't get parking requirements to be eliminated, which is really the ideal thing to do, if we can just reduce them down a little bit more, if you could just bring them down, like reduce them down, if you can go from two spots to 1.5 spots, from 1.5 spots to 1.25 spots for these apartment buildings we're talking about, right? Um, if you can start to decrease it, it almost always will make your community stronger. The simplest thing that can be done to build stronger places is to eliminate parking requirements, and then to start, and or, and and, if, and and if you can't do that, then to reduce them downward. It's just like it's a simple and easy thing to do that actually real bu- builds place in that traditional development pattern, and uh, and people will figure it out. You know, it's so the Yogi Berra like old quote of like nobody goes there anymore; it's too busy. Like that's not the po- like it's it's a false problem. Like people I live in a neighborhood in downtown Seattle where you can find an open spot eventually but it takes a while because there's a lot of people living here and like people like parking on the street even though there's some off street parking too but people find a place maybe they have to park 3 blocks away from where they live uh, maybe you have like some reordering of what happens there but it's not this like impossible like thing to solve and it's such a better problem to live in a neighborhood that's filled with people and activity and neighbors and community and, you know, and, and playgrounds with kids on it than it is to live in an empty spot with a bunch of, with where it's really easy to park your car. Like which one of those places do you really want to live in? Would you rather have the pain of having to build a little harder to park your car or, or live in an emptied out neighborhood? And those are really the choices that we face.
0: As somebody who parks out on the street and is fine with walking a few blocks to where I'm going, I, I'm not somebody who who go somewhere because there's a lot of parking. It's like, that's such a secondary type of appeal. It's really not, it's not a selling point for people. Nobody goes somewhere because there's lots of parking. And I agree, it is It is kind of a false problem, especially when you're talking about downtowns and mixed use kind of centers. People don't go there because there's lots of parking. And that's why they have a parking problem. So th- this is such a fascinating discussion with you and thank you so much for joining me and i think we'll leave it there um but before we before we finish today it is time for the down zone which is the part of the show where we can take anything that we have been listening to reading watching um to share today i'm going to start with you john what has been on your radar
1: so the thing that I'm like low-key obsessed with right now is I've been listening to the new Ezra Klein show as part of when he went over to the New York Times show recently and he's been doing these interviews and I'm skipping all the political ones because I just I just can't right now, but I'm listening to all the ones that are like when he like talks to like philosophers and like I don't know other folks like that, and there was one recently and I should have looked it up before we came on here but there's there are a couple that are like blurring together here, but part of what they talked about was this look and this examination. Of um of children and childhood development and what ch- children's brains look like, and the real research that it showed was that children's brains are different than adults' brains, and not like not like like I think we often think of like less developed, but no, developed differently, have different sets of strengths, um, and particularly the strength that they have is one of exploration, right? So our adult brains are built for knowing things. And to build to like be able to like tap into information that we've learned and like be able to like use that information, like apply it. And and almost they're built for like certainty, and a child's brain is built for exploration and for uncertainty. Um, and one of the fascinating things that like they brought up was um, was octopi, octopuses. Um, I think Octopi is the correct way to say it, but it feels like such an odd, odd word. But <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that aside. And they're odd. And the thing about an octopus is it's an odd, odd creature. Um, octopuses, octopi have um, have multiple brains. So they have one central brain, and then each one of their tentacles, they have its own brain too. And it has its own kind of brain that's actually like operating. This is like the theory of what's happening here. And one belief is, because of how they operate differently, is that the central brain in the middle there, right? That's the brain that's, like, doing, like, that knows things, right? And it's the one that's trying to, like, do some, like, centralized control and, like, have, like, gain knowledge and, like, can be, octopi smart. And so it's, like, has, like, ideas about what to do here. And the octopus will, like, use that. And then all the tentacle brains are, like, childlike exploring brains. that go out and, like, explore things and try to figure things out and, like, understand them and, like, are always out there exploring. And I want to be more like an octopus. And I think there's ways you can do that and things that you can do where I'm, where I'm not losing that adult sense of knowledge. But I'm trying, to express the, I'm trying to approach the world with a little bit more sense of exploration, with a little bit less sense of I already know what's here, and a little bit more of like curiosity and wonderment and what's happening there. And I think that's something that's just like is really worth doing. And so what I'm going to try to do is we're in this moment, right, for me. So I'm going to be fully vaccinated about a week from now. I hope that's happening for many of us right now. Um, and I'm going to be heading back in the world as like my state reopens up here again. And so as I head to this new like period of time, I just want to really approach it again with like that curiosity. I don't want to have lost out on like the things I've learned. I want to still like be a smart functioning adult, but I do want to have a little bit more of that exploration and a little bit more of like looking at things with fresh eyes and sort of this appreciation of what's new and be open to like learning new things and new approaches. So that's what I'm thinking about right now um, in my life and like what I'm like kind of like low-key obsessed with.
0: I love the way that you put that. Yeah, I I think that in the next year I hope it is a year of like exploration for people and you know so many people have been kind of cooped up for a year and I think we really, you know, didn't realize how important it is to explore and get out of our box and you know just kind of wonder about things and so yeah, that's that's really cool. So I actually have been cooped up in the house for the past week because it's springtime and it's raining and it won't stop raining every day. (laughs) So um, I don't really watch a lot of television, but Netflix recommended this show. It's called uh, Love, Death and Robots. And they're basically these short animated films, I guess you would call it. It's a series. They're standalone episodes and each of them has to do with kind of some version of a futuristic dystopian uh reality and different people produce each one so the animation is different in each episode and some of them are 20 minutes some of them are 10 minutes and I just love stuff like that and of course Netflix recommended it to me because they know me really well I guess I really have become interested recently in animation and um have just been so impressed with how creative animation has become and and interested in just watching more animated films. So this one is more of an adult animated um, series. So it's, it suits me, but um, I think on a previous down zone, I mentioned that I watched um, the secret life of pets. And was like really impressed that children's uh, movies have gotten so much better than I think it was when when I was a little kid and maybe when you were a kid too. And so, yeah, I'm I'm just so impressed with animation and and just curious about how it works and like just the whole the whole process of animation is really fascinating to me.
1: I love that series too. And what I love about it is that is the shorts nature of it. And I, I'm very fascinated by the fact that there isn't more. I've always loved like short films and every once in a while you can like find like a collection, of, like the short animated films from that year that, you know, that were nominated for Academy Awards or whatever. And they're always so amazing and so like special. And they're the, um, they're often like, and you can tell with that series too, right? Because there's different artists doing each one of them, like the handcrafted nature of them and like the peculiar, like purpose, like people did with it. And they're just, they're just like these incredible, like little works of art. And I wish that we had more of a – I hope this happens with, like, streaming service and everything, where we have more a culture of, like, these small, interesting stories. Because I even think, like, the short story and the short form, I think, has, has gotten lost a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that like, like, you know, like, the, like, like, short stories, even, like, written short stories I, I love, too. And yet we don't get those collections as often as maybe they were, like, a big hit, like, 50 years ago or something. But – I hope we see more of that short form stuff in the future because I, you know, maybe it's my attention span, but I don't think it's just that. I think there's something very special about something that's crafted to say a very particular thing. Maybe it's like why I love like small businesses too. There's something like in that too, but these, these like small projects are just like, there's something just very, um, I don't know. It's concise.
0: Yeah. It's, it's concise and it's to the point. And you know, when something is concise, you cut off a lot of fat and a lot of extra stuff that doesn't really need to be included. Um, like when you said that, I was actually thinking of another series that I caught up on another dystopian series. I don't know what's wrong with me, but, um, Handmaid's Tale new season came out, um, I guess in the past couple of weeks. So I, I, have started watching that again. Very it's a very sad series. I don't know why I'm doing this to myself by watching it, but it's very long and there's so many series that it just goes on and on and on and you know the the opposite of that are these really short 10 to 20 minute films and there's something to that that it's it's really nice to have resolution. It's nice to have a concise story and the animation part of it is just fascinating and beautiful to me. I'm I'm glad that you've watched that too because there there was this one um where somebody the, the character is on a train. Um, you may recall that episode and they have this animation style that is almost like you're watching a strobe light, like it they they cut pieces of it out and so the movement is I don't know I don't have a name for it. I don't know what that is and Um, The movement aspect of the characters and that it kind of looked like you're watching a strobe light in a way, it was really cool and not something that I've seen before. So I'm hoping that more artists are able to be elevated and um, be able to participate in these kinds of shows as they're putting them on Netflix and, you know, just kind of uh, maybe making more of that content.
1: Well, so. Not not to stretch this out too long and ruin the conciseness that we both said we just value. I know. We're no, we never
0: concise on this show, trust me. Yeah.
1: But I think, um, uh, I thinking about that, like there's something really special about being able to sample lots of different things, right? It's sort of like the fun thing about like going out to friends for sushi, maybe, or like other kind of things where you get to sample like small plates and all sorts of things like so, yeah, this. Yeah, it's like tapas. Yeah, but and <laughs> even more so when they're like completely different genres or completely different things. There's something really. Wonderful. Oftentimes there's this power like in going deep, right? And like exploring a topic and spending a lot of time like diving into parking. I've spent so many hours and days of my life talking about parking. But then there's also this wonderful thing that short films do of like dabbling a little bit, of learning something here, and then seeing a complete thought here and then a complete, here, and a complete thought here and a complete thought here and a complete thought here. And what it lets you do is start to like cross-reference with those each other and think about like how this animation style versus this animation style and what do they have in common? What do they have a the difference? like how do these things come together? And I just really love there's something special that comes from being able to compare multiple short thoughts to each other. Like I think about like sometimes I'll read like um, old New Yorker articles and I'll read them like, but I keep them for years and years. It takes forever to get them, but I'll read one about this thing. And then from a year later, one about this thing, and one about this thing and they're like totally different topics. Right. Um, but like, they start to like bounce around in your hand away. That's really interesting. And it's hard to do that with like books because they just, there's, there's so much more depth, right. You get all the way into the world. There's something great about being able to like dip in and dip out. I just start to be able to like take these ideas and like, interconnect them in your own head in a different way. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, uh, but that, for yes. me, that's part of the appeal.
0: That's a great way of putting it. And I agree that that's a huge appeal. So, well, this has been such a great conversation. I hope you come on again soon.
1: This was such a blast. It is so thrilling to talk to the podcast and have the podcast talk back. Um, So this is such a new experience and it's such a pleasure um, to get to talk with you. And I'm so appreciative of all the things you're doing each week to help build strong towns and just like the contribution you're making to uh, to this movement that we both care about.
0: Well, thanks so much. I'm having a lot of fun. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upsound. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, John.
1: Thank you. Let me show you.